said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hand. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. and our little boy Ravi uh, and I am one of the pastors at Riverbank Christian Church just over in Riverside. I've been wanting to come to the branch for quite some time. It's nice to finally be here with you and to bring God's word to you. Uh, why don't we pray? Uh, we'll ask God to open our hearts and minds now and then we'll get into it. Father God, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word open in our laps ready to do its work. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit and that you would show us something more of your grace and your compassion. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Tomo thinks that God is a pretty good-natured kind of guy. You know, God knows Tomo's doing his best. Uh, oh, sure, he's not perfect, but none of us are, right? And when Tomo gets there, when he gets to heaven, God's going to see that he was basically a pretty good guy, and it's all, it's all going to be fine. Sally thinks that God is quite cruel and demanding. I mean, she is always trying to do the right thing, to stay in his good books. It is pretty exhausting. But Sally is just hoping that one day when she hops on the scales, her hard work is going to be enough and it hopefully is just going to tip things in her favour. Well, Tim, he thinks that God is kind of a bit like a divine pinata hanging in the sky. And if you just hit it with the right kinds of prayers, uh, you'll get whatever you want. And Tim thinks that, well, you know, if you're one of those people struggling with sickness or something going wrong in your life, it's... It's probably a sign that you lack faith. 
and you should pray a bit more. Frank is, is pretty sure God doesn't exist. If he does, he's certainly not very interested or involved in anything going on down here. And Frank has reached this conclusion after years of past hurt and trauma. Surely, if there was a God of love and power, he would not have allowed that to happen. Beth, she just thinks God's disappointed with her. I mean, she's trying to take her Christian faith more seriously. She's, she's trying hard, but she can't shake that feeling that God expects more from her. That, that she's letting him down after all that grace that he's given her. What about you? I wonder what you think about God. We, we all have a view of God, even if we deny his existence. And our view of God makes a huge difference to how we live, doesn't it? Which is why it's really important to ask, well, who is God? What's he like? And that's actually what Moses is wrestling with in this passage in Exodus 34. Moses is longing to see God, to, to know what God is really like. Over the past year, he has seen God's power displayed over mighty Pharaoh of Egypt. And he's seen God's salvation as God brought the nation of Israel out of slavery through the Red Sea. But Moses has also seen Israel sin and screw up in the most spectacular way, taking their spare jewelry to make an idol of a cow and turning their backs on God. And the question for Moses is, how is God going to respond to that? What kind of God is he? What's he going to do about the people's rebellion? What's he going to do about this covenant that he's made with them? Is he just going to overlook their sins or is he going to destroy them? Moses is wrestling with the nature of God. Who is God? And he says there in chapter 33, verse 18, Lord, I want to see your glory. What do you think of when I say the glory of God? Perhaps this booming voice like thunder. Perhaps a God of holiness who, who kind of exists in this blazing fire of perfection. Those of us who grew up in church would, would know that we, we should respect and honor God, shouldn't we? But, but why? Is it because if we don't, he could change his mind about us and just give us the flick one day? Are we a bit like Jack up in the giant's castle at the top of the beanstalk, tiptoeing around because if the giant wakes in a bad mood, he might grind our bones to dust? Well, God's response to Moses doesn't exactly put us at ease. And God says, okay, Moses, I will grant your request, but... You can't see my face or you'll die. So when my glory passes by, I'm going to put you in a cleft in the rock. I'm going to cover you with my hand. And then after I've passed, I'm just going to let you turn around and peek at my back. That's all you can handle. So the scene is set. Moses is hiding. And then verse 5, Exodus 34, verse 5, the glorious God of the universe comes down. Notice that language? He has to stoop low 
to come and visit puny Moses. And then Moses hears God speak. And God begins by saying his name twice. The Lord, the Lord, or in Hebrew, Yahweh, Yahweh. This is God's name. He's repeating it for emphasis. He's not just going to give us his title. He is about to reveal who he is. This is God's nature. This is God's being. So, what's he like? That's what we want to look at this morning. I don't have three points. Uh, We're just going to work our way through verses 6 and 7 together, bit by bit, word by word. And we are going to learn who God says he is. This is a bit like an exclusive interview, maybe. That behind the scenes, the man behind the mask, who is God? Let's get into it. He begins. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God. That's staggering. First words out of his mouth. God is setting the terms here. What's he going to lead with? Supremely powerful, unapproachably holy. No, he leads with compassionate and gracious. Compassionate means he cares deeply for you and me. Not just in spite of all of our sins and struggles, but but because of them. Compassionate means that when we're in need, his heart is actually drawn towards us to help us. And God says he's gracious. It means he doesn't give us what we deserve. But it means more than that too. It means he delights to give us what we don't deserve. Uh, It's like you just intentionally took a can of petrol and set God's house on fire. And he comes to you and he says, I'm going to let you go. I'm not going to press charges. But that's not all. I'm also going to personally pay to have the house rebuilt. And then I just want to give that to you and you just keep it. You live in it. That's, That's what God's shocking grace is like. And it's not like your grandmother's china that only comes out on special occasions. His grace is an everyday free flowing commodity. It comes naturally to him. It's who he is. And then he goes on to say that he is also slow to anger. Did you know that uh, 42 times in the Old Testament it says that God was provoked to anger? But not once are we told that he is provoked to love. Uh, In his wonderful book, Gentle and Lowly, Uh, which I've drawn on heavily for this sermon and recommend to you, Dane Ortland says, God's anger requires provocation, but his mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. Then God goes on to tell us that he's abounding in love and faithfulness. That word for love, that's God's Covenant love, hesed. Uh, I like how the Jesus Storybook Bible describes it. As God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And God isn't loving towards you because he has to be. 
It's not as if he got himself locked into this covenant contract and now he's kind of looking back and going, I really wish I hadn't signed on the bottom line of this. The whole reason he made that unbreakable promise to you, to save you, to, to, to bring you into eternity with him, was because in his deepest heart, his very nature, he is abounding in love to you. Putting a lid on God's love is like shaking up a can of Coke and cracking the seal. Good luck containing it. His love is an unbreakable promise and it never ends and it never fades. God goes on to elaborate on this love. He says that he maintains love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. It could also be translated that he maintains love to a thousand generations. Dane Ortland points out this, this doesn't mean that his goodness shuts off with generation number 1001. No, it's God's own way of saying there is no termination date on my commitment to you. You can't get rid of my grace to you, Ortland goes on. You can't outrun my mercy. You can't evade my goodness. My heart is set on you. End quote. Yeah, but what if I really mess up, you say? What if I'm one of those Christians who got drafted to the team in the first round picks and then I just have not been performing like they thought I would? Maybe you're carrying a burden on your shoulders right now. A stubborn sin. And it constantly makes you feel unworthy. A painful regret from deep in the past and it just haunts you. Or just that dull ache of knowing that for large portions of this week, we barely thought about God barely prayed, barely read his word. Well, hear what God says. And don't forget, this is in the context of the, the golden calf sin. I maintain love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. What is God willing to forgive? Three words there, wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's code for anything and everything. But then come those difficult verses, the ones that I've often struggled with. Yet. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. I've often found these verses sound a bit uncomfortable, a bit harsh. But I think if we look at them in the context of what we've just seen about God's extravagant love and grace, they're going to start to make sense. And I think there's two misunderstandings that we want to avoid about this. Misunderstanding number one. Hey, God just doesn't care about sin. I mean, justice, schmustice. If God is as compassionate and gracious as you've just said, then, I mean, he obviously doesn't really care about sin at all. And God says, No. I am not morally wimpy or spineless. I am perfectly just. And, and let's not cringe at that, friends. 
I, I dare you to look the mother in the eyes after her 12-year-old daughter's body has been found in the forest and tell her justice doesn't matter. Tell her it's a good thing that God mushily loves everyone and holds no one accountable. Sin is incredibly serious. It has terrible consequences in our lives, in our families, in our churches, in our society, in our world. It's this poisonous weed and it spreads from grandparents to parents to children, from this church to this church, from this nation to this nation, destroying the world that God loves. And as a good and righteous and just God, he absolutely must deal with it. And he will. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I say this with so much love for you, that should give you sweaty pits and an elevated heart rate. That should make you eager to run to Jesus and accept his free offer of grace and forgiveness. If you are a Christian, these verses remind us God's grace in your life did not come cheap. It cost Jesus his life. He was physically tortured by asphyxiation on a Roman cross. And that was nothing compared to the spiritual torture, where he bore all of God's holy, just wrath that we would have endured in hell forever. So let's, let's be careful not to belittle our sin, not to think that God's grace comes cheap. That's the first misunderstanding. But, but there's another misunderstanding that we need to avoid too. And it's the idea that God is an angry, bloodlusting tyrant who gets a kick out of punishing people for their sins. He kind of likes it. How do we respond to that? I think we need to read this in context. Notice the contrast. Four sinful generations being punished. And God's mercy flowing down through a thousand generations. Four, 1,000. Do you see how mercy and love are the dominant emphasis? It is grace, not retributive justice, which lies in the depths of God's heart. Well, I, I began this morning by asking you, who is God most deeply in his heart? What's he like? And these verses... that. They're like an exclusive interview or, or that tell-all autobiography, the inside scoop on God. And, and what they reveal, I think, if you're like me, is amazing, surprising. But it's possible that you're not convinced yet. You know, maybe you're sitting there thinking, Reuben, I think you're cherry-picking. You're just taking this one passage and you're making so much of it. And that objection would be fair, if it wasn't for the fact that these words from Exodus 34, 6 and 7 are repeated constantly through the Old Testament. If Israel goes through life singing a song, then these words are the chorus to that song. 
Uh, let me just give you a few quick examples. King David says in Psalm 86, You, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Or the prophet Joel, he says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Uh, I quite like it when Jonah complains about God who's just shown mercy to Nineveh. And he says, I knew you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. When we read the Bible carefully, we just, we just simply can't say, well, God is angry and judgmental in the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes along in the New Testament and he's kind of like, yeah, uh, sorry, sorry for my father, guys. He's, he can be a bit prickly. I promise he's got a heart of gold. That is not it at all. The same eternal, never-changing God is revealed through the whole Bible. And he is, by his very nature, overflowing with compassion and love. And Moses knew that. He actually knew that really well. Because this wasn't the only time Moses got to see the glory of God. Hundreds of years later, long after he had died... Moses reappeared on another mountain and the glory of God was revealed to him again. Except this time his face wasn't hidden in a cliff and the revelation didn't just come with words. This time he got to stare God right in the face, the face of Jesus Christ. And in that moment he met the same God that he had met previously on Mount Sinai. And we call this amazing event the transfiguration, big word, transfiguration, you can find it in Matthew chapter 17. As his disciples are watching, we read that Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, his clothes became as white as the light, and just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Then the voice of God, the Father, booms down from heaven. This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. What's happening in, in this incredible story? God's voice booming from heaven is, is clarifying beyond a shadow of a doubt this man, Jesus, is, is really none other than God himself. This is the invisible God of Mount Sinai standing before you in 3D. The word has become flesh. Think, think about that for a minute. God's words have become embodied. Visible, touchable, huggable. When you see Jesus, you are seeing the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love. When Jesus touches you and heals you, you are feeling the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Jesus is the incontrovertible proof that the God we meet in the Old Testament isn't just talk. You say, is God really compassionate? Well, here is the eternal creator of the universe come to earth crying like a baby because he cares so much about our desperate plight. You say, is God really gracious? 
Here is he who had no sin, becoming sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Is God really slow to anger? After humanity has been piling up offence after offence, like a pile of excrement the size of Mount Everest dumped on God's doorstep for thousands of years, here is God sending his son into the world not to condemn it and destroy it, but to save it. Is God really abounding in love and faithfulness? Here is the most costly gift anyone's ever given. The perfect fulfillment of hundreds of promises made by God over thousands of years all coming true. Okay, here's the thing. Here's here's what I want to end with. I don't think the issue with this description of God in Exodus 34 is whether it's accurate or not. I think the real issue is that we really struggle to believe it and accept it. We struggle to receive it into our hearts and our lives as true. Consider this, see what you think. Could it, could it be that the biggest problem in your life is not that sin that you're trying to fight and that circumstance which is making things really hard? What if the biggest problem is that in the midst of all of that, your view of God is impoverished and shriveled? That there are dark thoughts of God in your heart. Thoughts that make us cool towards him. Thoughts that make us doubt his power to do immeasurably more than we can ask or think. Thoughts that make us think that his grace is, is drying up like a texture. Dane Ortland argues... The Christian life, from one angle, is the long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. And I I actually think that is what we need more than anything else as Christians. We need to know who God really is. He's righteous and just, but he's also compassionate and gracious and loving. And when we really grasp that, it it changes everything. It provides you with amazing comfort when we go through times of hardship and suffering in our lives. When we despair about the political landscape in Australia. When we struggle with a health crisis. It also provides great comfort to those who feel bruised and battered and wearied by sin whether it's our own sin that we're struggling to deal with, or whether it's someone else who has sinned against us and we have experienced hurt and betrayal. What wonderful reassurance to know that our God pours out grace on all those who turn to him. What comfort to hear Jesus say, a bruised reed I will not break, a smoldering wick I will not snuff out. Amazing comfort. But, but where I want to end 
and land today is that this view of God actually drives us to worship. It gives us a view of God that actually warms our hearts. Don't underestimate the significance of that. There there are millions of religious people in the world today. And there were billions before them. But how many of those people enjoyed a relationship with their God that was full of intimacy and joy and love? The application of the sermon is not a list of things to go away and do. The application is simply this. Here is your God. Enjoy him. Smile. Delight in him. Marvel at him. Come and taste again. Taste, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. One more quote from Dane Orland. I hope you'll go and get the book if you haven't already. He illustrates this by saying, if an Inuit came from the Antarctic, wins a vacation to a sunny place, he doesn't just arrive in his hotel room, step out onto the balcony and wonder hmm, how to apply this to his life. He just enjoys it. He just basks. Of course, Worship of God is going to drive us to lives of action. That's absolutely true. But it starts with hearts that are set on fire with genuine, warm affection and awe for our God. And I hope and pray that is the type of joy that is filling your life and filling this church. That that the world around us would be bamboozled because our religion doesn't look oppressive or legalistic. It looks great that they would see that our religion is rooted in a God who we actually love and enjoy. A beautiful God full of grace and compassion who we have the privilege of knowing and serving and being with forever. Will you pray with me?